This episode of the Good Ship Brothership is brought to you by Eating Crayon So You Can Poop a Rainbow. Eating Crayon So You Can Poop a Rainbow. The only true way that you can bring the digestive tract into a piece of art. I mean, let's be honest. I'm sure different performance artists out there have taken their feces and kind of like smeared it on a wall or on themselves or on other people or on a canvas or something and tried to pass it off as art. But none of us are really buying that. If you ingest a full 24-pack of Crayola crayons and then you poop, you can't tell me that that's not art. You can't stand and honestly look at that and take it in and consider it and ingest it and think about it in an intellectual and emotional capacity and tell me that that's not art. Look at the colors. Look at how they've blended through the organic process of the human body. They've been transformed by your physicality. Eating crayons and then pooping them out transformed by your physicality go to eating crayons and pooping them out.com today to eat some crayons and then poop them out and now on with the show uh, i have an addendum to that because i don't to, know that to, i ever told that, you this. that being like the, the sponsorship. sponsorship i don't know that i ever told you this i know i told dad this okay i was discussing with joseph who maybe we'll have on the show one day i if really he, hope we so. get around to it um we're about, gonna have his, we're gonna have his daughter on about uh performance artists and how through like the early 80s there were a lot of them who were doing things just to shock like the highfalutin art critic scene while distancing themselves from the everyman which will is a topic we'll actually talk about later with barton fink but there was this guy i wish i could remember his name true story and his art installation this was like the peak of the craziness was he would stand in the corner of a museum in a room naked and then when people walked in he would defecate while screaming get the f out at them until they left and that was his art installation yep well you know that's yeah so i guess the moral of the story is you should have had some crayons that all started i would say with maria i think her last name was sharapova or something like that is that her name i'm not sure do a quick google search here who um stood stood like responseless no that's not her she's a she's a russian tennis player (laughs) hold hold on (laughs) Today we're talking about Russian tennis player Maria Sharapova. He's looking up uh, Italian lady performance artist. <laughs> I think she's Italian, but I could be completely. This show is so uh, off the rails. Maria Abramovic. Oh, Aber- oh my goodness! I was ready to die. She's the one who like stood in an art installation, and there she there's like a table in front of her with like a knife and a gun and like all these different items and she just stood completely unresponsive and let the audience do whatever they wanted to her she's the one who started that whole art movement i well i could be completely out of left field there and if joseph is listening to this he'll get in touch and probably bite my head off when it comes to performance art we really know nothing except me i know everything okay um how do we start these now hello jason hello uh what have you been ingesting lately uh, let's see. Here's my problem. So I've been playing this game Fortnite. It's this multiplayer game. Not here, here we go. Not a story-rich game. Not the sort of <laughs> thing that we talk about here. But it robs me of time to uh, play a lot of other games that are maybe arguably more meaningful and watch more movies. So I've been doing a lot of that. Um, that said, I rewatched Drive with Caleb. I don't know if I told you that um, when I, I was over at his place the other day. Still a really fun movie. Just fantastically shot. Really well-paced. Uh, we talked about that one, though. And we also showed him uh, Pulp Fiction for the first yeah. time. Yeah. Which is kind of a special experience to see somebody witness Pulp Fiction uh-huh. and like it, like what happened to me. It kind of just 
pries like it's the jaws of life pries the door off your your perception for what a movie can be you know for sure um and then in addition to that i haven't really had any patterns of like what i've been listening to i've still been listening to uh a lot of tom petty and the heartbreakers like at work and stuff like that i get to dj um been listening to more tragically hip some older stuff which i guess makes sense i really need to seek out music like new music this year so maybe that'll be for next episode. That's what the show know. is all about. Um, but yeah, not a lot. I'm still reading through uh, Chipping Away at One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I'm trying to read that like a bit a day. Maybe when I'm done, I can review it like on my own. I don't know. Sure. I don't know yeah. how that'll work. Yeah, that'd be because fun. like I know that you, like we can't coordinate reading books as easily because it's such a big time sink. And also, but I think it's worth having about. to buy two copies of a book is also a huge pain in the yeah. butt. We could technically buy one and then share mm-hmm. but that also is not really logistically applicable yeah. or usable but i've i've been watching my way through a, a lot of like netflix all right ladies and gentlemen this is the part of the show where grant andrews takes you through his curated netflix we should do like our netflix picks. we sometime. really should do this because i feel like a lot of people say oh i'm looking for stuff to watch on netflix and i don't really have anything Right now on Netflix, there is, there are, sorry, more amazing Living films. Living is on Netflix. Shut up. There are more amazing films on Netflix than I think, also for those of you listening, that's not an aggressive shut up, that's a brotherly shut up. I didn't know that Limitless was on Netflix. But still, shut up. Okay. Regardless. Are you going to get there? Yes, okay. of course I'm going to okay. get there. I'm okay. not going to ignoramus. Oh. So there are just a litany of fantastically good or compelling films on Netflix. There will be Blood. By Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, is on there, which is a pertinent watch uh, as the Oscar season looms and Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis's allegedly final collaboration, Phantom Thread, is up for just a pant load of awards. The Deer Hunter is on there. If you like war movies, it's a Vietnam. I really want to see that movie. Kind of told as a couple different. Um, uh, settings that are very starkly contrasted. A really interesting movie that I think I've seen twice, but I still need to see more because it's very interesting. Just in its, it's incredibly. It's three hours long, very slowly paced, of course, but still kind of brilliant. Ex Machina is on there, which is a kind of a classic. Uh, if you're looking for a TV series, I recommend Peaky Blinders to everybody. Um, it's incredibly inappropriate, but some of the most well acted. I wouldn't and call well it written. gratuitously inappropriate, but I, I said incredibly. Okay, yeah. It's not gratuitous. It's incredibly inappropriate. Yeah, there's a lot of sex scenes. There's a lot of swearing. So you know, let's just take that into consideration. The Truman Show is on Netflix, and I haven't seen that yet, but I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Uh, Under the Skin with Charlotte Johansson, which is kind of a mix of a found footage film in which she uh, gives hitchhikers rides around uh i think it's glastonbury no not glastonbury sorry scottish city something anyway glasgow glasgow thank you um and then i think it meshes together scenes of her as her quote-unquote true form this alien consuming oh that one yeah them and that's it sounds super weird but really interesting haven't seen that yet looking forward to it silver linings playbook which is highly acclaimed and sounds weird and i don't like jennifer lawrence that much but I'm, um, you know... I believe she was, um, like, the highest-paid female actor a few years ago, like, I'm on the heels willing, of Hunger Games. Well, of course. I'm willing to take a look at it. A Ghost Story, which looks really interesting. Oh, I re- we gotta watch that one. And sounds incredibly cool. Made last year. We should review that. 
Should we review that for the next episode? Sure. Why not? Let's do it. Write it, write it down somewhere, please. We'll remember. I, where am I supposed to write uh, it down? The Godfather Part 2, which I still haven't seen. Saving Private Ryan, which I still haven't seen. Night. Okay, so now we get to the films that have actually been You didn't watching. say Limitless. Well, Limitless. Limitless is Like, really we good. already discussed that. Limitless is very funny. Mean we already discussed that. Limitless is... A, we did. You brought it up oh, and, and said, are you going like, to get to it? And I like, said, yeah. Shut up. In which, in the course of which I actually got to it. Okay. So the films I have been watching, Nightcrawler, which is a very interesting, very critically acclaimed film starring Jake Gyllenhaal from a couple years back, 2014 as it turns out. And it's kind of an evolution on Taxi Driver in a couple ways, but also not at all. He is a um, crime scene photographer slash film like a uh, somebody who goes and films crime scenes mm-hmm. like victims and that sort of thing for the news yeah and he just pushes the sensationalist envelope further and further and further in order to further his own motives and he may or may not be a complete psychopath himself etc etc really cool movie brilliant character study and uh, very just really nicely presented a couple flaws with it but on the whole completely worth it if you want something in that kind of psychological thriller vein. Let's, let's, I just want to say, let's not take too long on this. We gotta get I'm not going to. I'm just okay. like, I'm, I'm suggesting things that if people are looking for films, I'll give them a couple of suggestions. And the Cloverfield Paradox, I was kind of interested to see on here too. Okay. It's, I mean, it's a Netflix original. But. Um, Moon by Duncan Jones, son of David Bowie, is on Netflix, which is very much um, a riff in a lot of ways on 2001 A Space Odyssey. But it's still really fun. It plays with that, you know... Um, how human is human kind of theme and themes of isolation, loneliness, feeling disconnected. It's it's no uh, masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, but it is a thoroughly enjoyable way of spending an hour and 37 minutes. And then finally, Memento, which I watched recently, which I now think is easily Christopher Nolan's best movie, and I love it. Very, very, very cool. Very intelligent, but with an emotional streak that I think Nolan's lost in his later films. And now I'm watching A Most Violent Year with Oscar Isaac as a, well, a an owner of a truck company who may or may not be involved in semi-illegal activities. You're never, never quite sure. Never seen Oscar Isaac in a bad movie. It's, it's like, a very cool movie. There are some breathtakingly beautiful shots in a most violent year so if you're into i'd say the closest parallel i could draw to it just in terms of tone might be the coen brothers um adaptation of no country for old men just in terms of these kind of grandiose uh filmic gestures which frame a much smaller but grittier reality if that makes sense so i think that's pretty i I realize that kind of Went on for quite a while. I mean, but... there are a lot. Oh, Midnight Special is supposed to be good, too. I'll add that to my uh, list. There there are just so many completely phenomenal. Spotlight, which is uh, won some Oscars, I believe. It's about the sexual assault scandal in the Catholic Church and the reporters who were brave enough to break the story. Um, so there are just there are absolute buckets of phenomenal films on Netflix right now. And I'm, I for one, I'm just so excited every time a new one gets added. Still no Waterworld. Yep. Oh, well. <sighs> oh, whoa, 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 whoa. 
There are so it many has, different jingles. There are a hundred. Oh, come on. Sorry. Can you top our coffee up a little bit, please? I'll top up your coffee. If I have too much, I'm going to start sweating olive oil out of my hands. There you go. I feel like, thank you. I feel like it would be really cost efficient if you could make olive oil out of coffee out of your hands. Because the price of olive oil is so high relative to the price of coffee. It's like... I literally have coffee coming out my nose right now. Don't talk to me. That would be one of those things that seems too good to be true. Like, uh... How you can poop, and then they pay you for that if you go to, like, one of those facilities. <coughs> Look at this. <laughs> You're Welcome to the Good Ship Brothership, the only podcast to cover film, music, gaming, literature, and African necklaces. He's Jason, and I'm your brother, Grant. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about the Coen Brothers, uh, what is it, 2004 or thereabouts? Older, than, isn't it? 94? No, 91. 91. I'm so sorry. 91 film Barton Fink, and the 1968 album Electric Mud by the blues legend and kind of founding father, Muddy Waters. Uh, so, uh, without further ado, I suppose, we will simply flip the, puppet. flip the puppet to determine which is... And Barton Fink, obviously, face down. Yes, that's what I was going to say, that's, too. The I obvious love choice. how we have this really weird logic for which way the puppet lands. And it we makes both perfect just, sense. Oh, face up would be... Electric And can mind. I just say, before we get into the reviewing, I love how on this show we have no... Um, impetus in terms of having to review new things i love the fact that we can go back to a staple of the blues or maybe not a staple a turning point of the blues like electric mud and that we can just dive into it and discuss it because it's our first time experiencing this classic i'm so sorry and it might be yours as well electric Electric mud Mud is the fifth studio up I'm going to do that again. That felt weird. Sorry. Electric Mud is the fifth studio album by Muddy Waters with members of Rotary Connection, which is a fantastic band name, serving as his backing band. Released in 1968, it imagines Muddy Waters as a psychedelic musician. Producer Marshall Chess suggested that Muddy Waters recorded it in an attempt to appeal to a rock audience. Which really didn't exist in 1968, but anyway. The album album peaked at number 127 on the Billboard 200 album chart. It was controversial for its fusion of electric views and psychedelic blues with excite... It was controversial because it sounded different. Uh, And the uh, production is kind of interesting as well. Uh, Should I read little bits of this or no? I don't think so. I don't think it's really necessary. We're not going to read it then. So, anyway, yes. Jason, you may go first. Thank you. You're welcome. So, when I was listening to an album like this, and then uh, trying to think of how I would compose my notes, I realized that it is really difficult to review an album like this, um, just in terms of like what perspective should you approach it from. Do you review it for what it was when it came out in 1968? Yes. I was just going to add, because you're starting on this train of thought, yeah. and it's extremely, it's exactly similar to some thoughts I had, so if you don't mind, I'll jump in and say my three perspectives I think you can adopt 
when reviewing an an older classic album. My three perspectives would be, you could look at it through the lens of the past, i.e., is it the first at expressing thoughts in this fashion? Is it the first to sound this way? Is it revolutionary in terms of, you know, the past? Uh, The present, i.e. influence, who sounds like this now? Or in isolation, in terms of, is this album good in isolation, in a vacuum, on its own? Yeah, I mean, that's basically the three ways I came up with, too, honestly. My my three, I phrased a little bit differently. I was thinking that you could view it um, in light of its contemporaries, you know, like how does the production stack up against other albums of the late 60s and the writing? Or you can look at it... um, and view it along with all of the albums and artists it influenced later. Because in some ways, when you're reviewing an album like this, you have to give it kudos for that. Or you could compare it to a modern album or any other album and be like, does this sound as good as Hot Fuss by The Killers? You know. So I think at the end of the day, I probably went with a combination of all three. And ultimately, I think that this is one of those albums that's a necessary listen from a history standpoint. But you'll end up staying around for more than just, like, education. The coffee makes me burp sometimes. I'm sorry. Um, first of all, I really like brevity in an album. Like, if you have a vision for a 90-minute album, you know, The Wall or whatever, go right ahead. But if you don't... Is The Wall even 90 minutes? I think it... It's like 87. Crushes. I think it's like 87. Really? Google it while I talk. Um, but if you don't have a vision like that... Like, say what you want to say and get out, you know? That's what we liked so much about, uh, what's his face? The bassist. Thundercats album. All his songs are, like, two minutes long. It's kind of refreshing. Oh, or or just albums that are short yeah. in general. And so in that vein, Electric Mud is eight tracks, 36 minutes, and it's super refreshing. It's 80 minutes. 80 minutes. And there you well, go. Almost 90 minutes. Or 81, sorry. Well, 80, sorry. going sorry, on 90. Sorry, 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 sorry. Um, I thought that this way, the latter tracks with this shortness didn't get, you know, like dusty. Like, Gang of Youths, Go Farther in Lightness, I talked about as one of my favorite albums of 2017. It's phenomenal. But I think it's almost two hours long. It's really long. And you find that a lot of the later tracks you just don't listen to. And it's kind of a shame. Because you don't want to, like, interrupt the rhythm of an album. Mm -hmm. With this, you can conceivably listen to, or we could, the entire album while you're, like, driving into town from where we live. And to add to that thought, I think that... And I was having a discussion with um, a friend today, shout out to Abigail Burgell, about uh, long novels versus short novels. And my kind of deeply, my deeply ingrained and completely incorrect notion that a longer novel has more substance or something more to say just due to its physical like size. Mm -hmm. But I think that that actually has more... um, Uh, validity when talking about a novel than an album because an album is something which you kind of assume you're going to re-listen yeah a novel is not necessarily something you go oh i'm gonna read this many times Mm. if i like it Uh, so in terms of good albums being long i think it's more detrimental to that status yeah than something like a novel or maybe even a film it's true. I mean, the barrier... Just a thought. The barrier to entry is always less for something like an album. But nevertheless, I absolutely love something short like this. It's not 
I don't really think he had a statement anywhere. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I think he just wanted to have fun, and That's I don't think there's cool. anything wrong with that. Um, and then another fact is, like I said, the influential nature of this. I was saying to you, like, listen to this, then listen to the Black Keys. Listen to this, then listen to Vintage Trouble. Like, even listen to this, then listen to Jack White, or someone that seems somewhat unrelated. But there are massive similarities in terms of tone, in terms of, like, the beat, the guitar work, the guitar tone used to convey, like, certain emotions. Mm -hmm. Even though it can come across in some ways like a quote-unquote surface-level album, just because it has seemingly no deep artistic statement, its roots have gone really deep in the music scene today, and I think that's, like, super cool. Um, when judging this as, like, a normal album, as it were, as whatever that means, you have to look at, like, the lyrics, and I'm like, I guess they're fine, like, for the blues. It's the blues, right? But at the same time, I think it's not too much to ask the blues to, like, have meaning. The the blues, lyrically speaking, is about a bunch of guys sitting around in a in a... In a uh, bar going broads, eh? <laughs> you know, yeah, like I know. And that's what blues to is. To an extent, I'm like, that's okay. And it's like you forgive a little bit of that sort of thing with rap, too. M- yeah, but at the same so. time, you're like, I still expect people to write like Kendrick or write like Tyler, even though most well, of them don't. Well, because when you, when you hear somebody like Kendrick Lamar rap, everything else is held to that standard afterward. Exactly. That high watermark. But all that to say, I think we should expect more than this out of blues, but I don't know that you can really dock it for this. It's a weird relationship. And it's the same with the music, really. You know, it's very formulaic, pentatonic, riffy sort of stuff. But at the same time, it's like how C.S. Lewis's brand of, like, animal fantasy sort of thing became cliched, like, in the years to follow. But he pioneered it. So, can you really call C.S. Lewis's stories cliché? Or can you devalue the originality of his right. stories because of what came after? Can you let that water the original, the originator down? It's the same thing with that, or with this, sorry. Because taken in isolation, I don't really think the music is very formulaic. And I understand, don't misunderstand me, that this isn't like the first album to do this by 10 years or whatever. Like, there were other guys, we were talking about... Um, Buddy Guy or Guitar Slim were doing similar things around the same time. Kind of. Um, But at the same time, I listen to it and I go, you know what? The tone still holds up. The interplay between like guitars and drums, even though it's simple, it's elemental, it still holds up. And I think that's hugely impressive because honestly, I think a lot of music, even 10 years newer than this, doesn't hold up as well. Uh, let me look through my notes. I got off track a lot, and then I'm like, where was I? Oh, um, one thing I found kind of interesting was, like, it would be interesting to have a conversation at some point, we don't need to now, about, like, is his music sexist? Because I don't know what I think about that. Because, like, I was looking through the track list, I got kind of a kick out of it. These are the first few tracks in succession. I just want to make love to you. I'm your hoochie coochie man. Let's spend the night together, and she's all right. I mean, I think that <laughs> I think um, I think it was Howlin' Wolf, the blues musician who is whose history and legacy and name has been heavily tainted, and I would say rightly so by his um, reputation as an 
absolute like not not an SJW masochist, like a real true woman beating yeah. monster scumbag who who is just a piece of garbage, really. Or or you know you could view him as that, or you could say he's deeply troubled and suffered from an alcohol addiction and a problem, and you know. But regardless, his actions led to you know tainting of his legacy yeah. and his memory. I don't. I'm not aware of such a accusation against Muddy Waters. There's that chance. Yeah. It could be the um, verbiage of the time. Just the yeah. That's... But regardless, it 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 could make you a little uncomfortable. But in the same breath, there's not really a tangible, um, real objectification of women in his lyrics. It's I don't true. Think. It's more just like. Um, uh, just, he a little thirsty. He's very thirsty, for lack of a, yeah. lack of a more family friendly yeah. term. <laughs> but I mean, at the end of the day, you have to. <laughs> I think I would look at it as a time and a place thing, and it wouldn't bother me from like a SJW perspective. But just from a critical listening perspective, taking this as a modern album, switching perspectives again, like. Do I wish he like? Would I enjoy it more if he switched up his subject matter more? Like, yes, yeah. I think I absolutely <laughs> yeah, would. Absolutely, you definitely. And would. even though you can't really blame the album for being what it is, I feel like if he had diversified his songwriting material, it would have absolutely made a better album. Um, also, I think just as kind of a minor side note, because I know that a lot of the blues artists weren't obsessed with fidelity at all. At first, I thought the fidelity well, was okay, and then I started to realize like when it was made. Like, right around... When did Zeppelin 1 come out? 69? 69. Yeah. So Zeppelin 1 came out one year after this, and I understand it was revolutionary from a production standpoint. Very. Yeah. Very. But it sounds 15 years ahead of this album. Did you hear that voice crack? <laughs> a little bit. Um, and so I think when you listen to this and then listen to a revolutionary album like Zeppelin 1, or even some of the Stone stuff from around the time, I think this sounds kind of muddy. Really? <laughs> By comparison. I, I think, think so, the, yeah. I think the Stones early stuff sounds like garbage compared to this or Zeppelin 1. I don't think that this is that far behind Zeppelin 1 in terms of fidelity. Really? Really. Interesting. I guess Did I you listen to Zeppelin listen. 1? Not while I was listening to this, but I've listened like, to it recently. Yeah. Um, and then I think I'm almost done. I also was questioning whether it actually sounds as modern as we think it is, or whether it only sounds modern because so many artists are trying to sound vintage. It sounds trendy. Yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll say that much. Um, but in closing, because I don't really think I have that much more to say before I'm wasting time, I think it really is a must-listen if you're a blues rock fan, or if you're interested in like the history of music. You know, yeah. I would, um, And I would encourage everyone to have a healthy interest in that, because I think it makes you enjoy modern stuff more, too. I think it's really enjoyable as a history piece, and I think it has merit as an album that you listen to just for its strengths. But I think if we look at it really objectively and don't just like worship it with this adoration because it came first, I think it really does have glaring flaws in like songwriting and uh, track diversity. So yeah, it's fun to listen to. But okay, yeah, go ahead. Now here I come. So I was going to lead off my review with, you know, the lenses through which we can regard these kinds of uh, classic or aged albums. But we already done that. a little passe at the moment. Uh, so I, I'll just leap right into the production. I, I really like the production on this album. Everything sounds clear and defined to me. You can always hear the bass 
and the drums and the guitars and the keys. There was a nice separation. Very, very nice separation and some really kind of pioneering things like bass distortion, which I was really surprised to hear, to be honest. I don't know if it was on purpose or if it was just kind of like artifacting from... Like in the same way that Muddy Waters' voice distorts when uh-huh. he when he really starts to belt it out on some of these tracks, I'm not I'm I'm inclined to think that that's not an effect that they were shooting for, but maybe more like an imperfection, which at the time they considered um, a necessary evil. But now we look back on with like almost a lustful uh, nostalgia. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's got that it's got just a really warm woolly kind of sound to it that the black keys obviously have yeah. really tried to I don't know how many times we said that to each other like from, oh listen to the black keys from basically the I'd say the inception of their of their uh, band uh, I'm not really familiar with their earlier albums but definitely from El Camino onward from and Brothers especially onward. oh yeah that's true yeah I'd say Brothers maybe might be the pinnacle of trying to emulate this album, especially um, on one particular uh, track, which would be She's Alright. She's Alright to me, uh, the riff. Sounds so much like um, like some of the Black Keys stuff. And one song in particular, which I couldn't quite place and I didn't care enough about to search. <laughs> but... Do you, like you do you? I don't remember the song too? name, but yeah. But there's some song somewhere, like maybe she's gone. I don't uh, know that it just sounds like in a really kind of alarming way. Let's spend the night together. Also sounds to me very close to "Sunshine of Your Love" by Cream. That riff is very closely mirrored in the. Uh, intro of let's spend the night together but because of these riffs what about manish boy you didn't even talk it about really that. i'm getting there it really breaks out of that traditional um blues box which is the that classic chord production and then up a fifth you know what i'm talking about mm. And that blues structure bores the snot out of me. And it always has and it always will. Because every song that utilizes that structure sounds so much the same. And sounds so boring to me. You can hum along to it the first time you've heard it. And there's a certain comfort food element there, I guess. But it really bothers me just as a musician, you know. Yeah, I guess we should have said going into this, historically, I would say I've probably been a bigger blues fan like just in terms of you said like you have more glaring issues with lack of originality than i do and we kind of go back and forth on this a little bit on like well it's tradition but is tradition really an excuse for not being i like the idea of the blues in practice i have more issues yeah but this album really doesn't adhere to that at all and it's got some really fun uh riffs that have um been lifted gently uh, by the you know fingerle- fingerprintless gloves of the Black Keys in recent years and uh, revitalized, and people have really connected with them. And I do think that that's a nice thing. I think it's 
too bad that maybe Black Keys didn't go, hey, um, here's a Muddy Waters cover on our album, just so that you know where we're coming from. Yeah, to be clear, I don't think the Black Keys are without merit, especially their older stuff. They're not without they merit. good stuff. But they are, you know, purloiners in the same sense as a lot of these blues musicians were. Yeah, of course. Speaking of which, Manish Boy. Also the intro of Manish Boy, with that kind of scream sound. that This kind of, like, screaming... Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Okay, I'm going to play it briefly okay. so that we don't get a copyright strike. I'm going into okay. this music streaming service. Oh my gosh, you've been listening to a lot of Ariana Grande. Grande. Ariana Grande, sorry. Listen to this. And then the backwards stuff. It sounds incredibly modern. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, for sure. The and I was just so... I'm so... I love that intro. With mm-hmm. the... Very cool. But Manish Boy, the progression and the lyrics and everything about yeah. it sound very much like Bo Diddley's Bad, which came out uh, years before. Uh, but it's kind of... It, you get the sense that it's kind of a loving tribute He's too late to the party in terms of writing and recording this song to be riding on the coattails of Bo Diddley's success. Yeah. So it's much more of a, wow, I love Bo Diddley. I was heavily influenced by this song. You could Here's say that about I... the Black Keys too, though. They're yeah, no, I could them. I could say that. But it's it's that's more what the Black Keys have done, I think, is more of a resurrecting of something. Going, yeah. hey, look at this fresh new thing we've done. Ugh, as they like exhume the corpse and then of bury the waters. bones real quick. Yeah. Take his wallet and... Bury the bones. Uh, yeah, so, but, you know, blah, 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 yada, yada. Manish Boy is a really cool, like, tribute almost to uh, Bo Diddley and the song Bad, which is a really cool song if you haven't heard it. Very, very, uh, just, it's it's the fossilized ancestor of rock and roll. Uh, She's Alright, which is a song which sounds the most like the Blackies I mentioned, um, has a really impressively forward-looking lead guitar, which is, like, fuzzed out and completely, you know, outside the lines. And it sounds like post-Hendrix, yeah. but in reality is very much pre-Hendrix. I don't, know if do you can, roll, I don't know if you can hear well, the yeah. part that I'm referencing in your head, uh-huh. but it's just this wild kind of slippery, sliding, slithering fuzz guitar lead that... Uh, underpins the entire song almost. It's like he's just kind of uh, closing his eyes and letting rip and just completely improving throughout the entire song as he sings the lyrics. And I we think we should it's... say that uh, Hendrix was putting out music at this time. Was he? Yeah, he had uh, Electric Ladyland came out in '68. Oh, jeez. Well, same out from '62 to '70s when he was putting stuff out. I am so sorry. So this I'm is uh, during during Hendrix's reign. Yeah. Um. Well, I stand corrected then, but I would still say that this um this particular song the the guitar playing sounds like something that that it is that is it's it sounds like it's of an era which it is not. Yeah. If if you dropped this guitar line, this guitar playing onto a St. Vincent album now, people would be like, oh wow. Oh wow. She's, she's so really she's so smart. She references blues a little bit and she samples that and then she references glam rock and oh wow. It's kind of shoegazy as well. Ooh. You know. 
Yeah. Uh, and that's just kind of impressive. Muddy Waters, as a musician, did come a, just a long way in terms of playing like T-Bone Walker style, one man and a guitar blues, which is yeah. kind of his, you know, bedrock or his foundation to playing this kind of Hendrix style thing. Overall, I think it's very pleasurable listening. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think it's, uh, I think anybody would enjoy listening to this. If you have even a passing enjoyment of a band like the Black Keys, I think you will enjoy this at least as much. If not more. Yep. Uh, in terms of it's it's fun music, it's expertly executed. Be it's great driving music, supreme driving music almost. Um, and I would in, encourage anybody the the problems that you rose rose pro, problems that you rose is that right? The problems that you presented. Okay. <laughs> in terms of like lyrical validity i observe but i would also say like can you judge the blues based on lyrics and i don't think that you really like you can but i don't think that it's as valid as other musical genres because of the fact that the blues is just almost a stream of consciousness just expression of your your just mundane thoughts if you will yeah i guess so i mean it's like original like i'm talking about like og folk a lot of times didn't have a whole lot of musical fidelity it was more poetry to simple music but at the same time you want to believe that the same thing can be achieved with more musical grace which we see in like the milk carton kids like there are a lot of genres where i'd say there's musical grace in this album as well yeah i'm not saying there isn't i'm saying there are a lot of genres where one aspect isn't key, like the lyrics or the musicality or whatever, but you still want to believe that they can measure up in those aspects. I don't think blues, like I don't even think great blues has to have good lyrics, but I still believe that the blues could have great lyrics and that it would make it better. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying I don't think that you can necessarily demonize it for that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I would also say the... uh, I I, uh, was very aware of buddy guys not accusations but buddy guys claimed that he was doing this kind of thing before this kind of thing happened mm-hmm. and while i kind of believe that i went back and listened to the album uh on which he and and his earlier stuff but the album on which he, he said he was like allowed to express himself the way he wanted to and it really doesn't sound like this at no. all like it's very much still the bum 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 but with just more distorted guitar. Yeah. Uh, it's his brand of blues is much, has a much lighter touch and much more finesse. Call of Duty multi. Okay. You're fired. <laughs> On to Barton Fink. That would be your review, I think, that we're listening right. to next. So, um, I really want to hear this, but I also have to urinate like nobody's business. Go ahead. Bye. Bye. You can start I'm kind of tempted to do that thing where no, I just don't read, say anything. Read the, um, yeah, okay, I will. I'm not going to start the review till you come back. Okay, let's see what we got here. Grant always keeps the mouse on his side, so I got to kind of, you know, pause my dignity to go get it. All right. Barton Fink is a 1991 American period film written, produced, directed, and edited by the Coen brothers. 
Set in 1941, it stars John Turturro in the title role as a young New York City playwright who is hired to write scripts for a film studio in Hollywood, and John Goodman as Charlie, the insurance salesman who lives next door at the rundown Hotel Earl. The Coens wrote the screenplay for Barton Fink in three weeks while experiencing difficulty during the writing of Miller's Crossing. They began filming the former soon after Miller's Crossing was finished. The film is influenced by works of several earlier directors, particularly Roman Polanowski's Repulsion and The Tenant, neither of which Grant or I have seen, to my knowledge. Uh, Barton Fil- Fink had its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival in May 1991. In a rare sweep, it won the Palme d'Or as well as awards for Best Director and Best Actor. I'm back. The film was a box office bomb, only grossing $6 million against its $9 million budget, but it's fair to say it was a critical darling and has a cult audience to this day. Wow, it bombed at the box office? After winning, like doing a sweep at the Cannes Film Festival, yeah. <laughs> wow. So, the Coen brothers are phenomenal. we have I don't know if we've reviewed Coen I'd brothers s- movies before or not. I'd say Yeah, we did me, Fargo for sure. Um, I'd say for me, the Coen brothers are... It's difficult because it's two guys uh-huh. who are making movies. I'd say them and Paul Thomas Anderson are, in my estimation, without like careful, careful consideration of every director at work today, they're probably, them and Paul Thomas Anderson are at the top of my pyramid. So they've made so many phenomenal movies, you know, from obviously the Big Lebowski to uh, one of my favorites, Inside Lewin Davis to, you know, something charming, charming like Fargo to this. And through it all, they have such a fantastic skill set, and they surround themselves with such skilled individuals. You know, they're directors of photographer, photographer, they're directors of photography and such, um, that their movies are almost inherently hard to really hate. And I don't hate Barton Fink, but I do have issues with it, um, kind of like Electric Mud, really. So I think one charming aspect of this movie is I think that anybody could watch it and enjoy something about it. So like I watched this movie, I've seen it before, but I watched it the other day with our father who is notorious for just being a hater of everything. Um, and he said overall he didn't like it, but he got laughs out of the characters. He really enjoyed seeing, uh, Lou and seeing Tony Shalhoub's character. I can't remember the name of and John Goodman. Um, or if you're a student of cinematography, you could look at these beautiful shots by Roger Deakins. And I'd like to also take a second and say, like, I wish we could see more beauty and muted color palettes in film, like this or Dunkirk did. You know, I think a lot of times um, we we yearn for these super vivid, you know, Mad Max Fury Road color palettes or Blade Runner 2049. And there's nothing wrong with that, certainly. But I think... Um, Barton Fink has this certain grimy beauty in the subdued nature of how everything looks. Like, there are very few bright colors in the movie. Um, And I think that actually works super well. It makes things like shadows stand out more. Um, And it repeatedly shows that scene of his desk with that fan that's always on, that's rotating, and that shadow slowly moving. Mm -hmm. And it's just super, for lack of a better term, like, cinematic. (laughs) Um, It is in a film. You did really lack a... A good term there. Um, in terms of character actors, obviously the Coen brothers have this arsenal of sweet actors. John Goodman, Steve Buscemi, John Turturro um, are all, all just... They work together so well. Um, and I think this movie is also good for people who are fans of 
like those deep dive Wikipedia fan theories kind of thing or Reddit or whatever. And I would like to point out, if only just just to accentuate my point from an earlier episode, this film is an example that you can have a movie with complex like openings for fan theories and still have a good surface level movie, which is what Field in England failed miserably at. Because it had good fan theories, but it was a horrible movie for a service viewing Trying to accomplish a completely different yeah, that's uh, true. goal, though. Um, although all this I've said is you know very positive stuff, and it really is, I believe, a hard movie to hate, I think it has some really significant flaws. And overall, I would say it's one of, if not my least favorite Coen Brothers movies. Um it's entertaining and it is thought-provoking, but it ends up, I would say, being really good instead of phenomenal. Um, not getting into spoiler territory, we never do, but the final act of the movie really changes everything, you know? It adds a lot of questions. Yeah, it adds a lot of questions. That's a good way to put it. Um, and although there are several valid explanations for what could be going on, and I don't hate it, I think that it was a little overdone, and I've heard of other people saying this too, so call me derivative. They already do. But a lot of people think that the Coen brothers were doing this because they're like, had to keep up their reputation as doing weird things. I know that's how quite a few people felt, and that's why this got some negative uh, critical reception. Nice picture. Um, (laughs) That's good. That really derailed me. Um, Also, I think there are several scenes that could have been shorter or been cut out altogether. I think um, what was the quote that somebody said? Like, shake any movie, and, and forty minutes will and forty follow minutes will follow. This, uh, this I wouldn't movie say is an hour and a half. It's an hour fifty-seven. Oh, um, I see. I wouldn't say it's bloated by any stretch of the imagination, but I feel like there's an easy fifteen minutes you could chop out and have a stronger film. It could definitely have been tightened. Yeah, and I think that even a little, like even if you cut out. 10 minutes, I think the whole pacing of the movie would have been improved, and my overall thoughts on it would have been better, and the ending wouldn't have seemed quite as... There's this initial shock, and then at the end you're left with questions, but in between there's this sort of draggy bit where you're like, okay, like, is anything going to happen? You're waiting. Yeah, there are a couple really, like, totally random tangential scenes that I don't understand why they're in it. Um, We talked about... It's not a spoiler. There's one scene that cuts from him in his room to just dancing at an army and navy uh base or whatever and it's just like what why um i i think there is a reason for that i think there is too but i don't know i'll tackle that in my review it didn't add anything to my experience um so yeah overall i think it's a fun watch if you like the coen brothers watch it if you like uh movies that leave you with questions watch it it's a nice movie in that it balances um, enjoyment just in terms of cinematography and fun characters, things you don't have to think much about, things they give you, and also leaving you with questions that you can ponder afterwards and search and come back to and watch the movie again, and you can really figure it out and get somewhere for yourself. So, as I said with Electric Mud, it's certainly not without merit. It's more than worth watching, but it's also not without glaring flaws. Okay. My reviews are tight today. I feel good. Is that true? I don't yeah. think that they're as tight as you think they are. It's just ten minutes. I saw I saw Barton Fink quite early on in my Coen Brothers journey. I think it may have even been the second 
Coen Brothers film that I saw after The Berg Lebowski. After The Big Lebowski, exactly right. And it had a profoundly unsettling effect on me. I was just kind of starting out on my uh, on my cinematic journey, as it were, and I hadn't really seen a lot of what uh, the more artsy side of movies had to offer in terms of uh, unconventional plots or characters or plot structures or cinematography or anything like that. So it had a profoundly unsettling effect on me just in its um, in its uh, consistent strangeness, if you will. Where, whereas also The Big Lebowski is more of an out-and-out like, screwball comedy, maybe. Mm. Um, this is much more a screwball comedy wearing the heavy cloak of almost literary fiction in sure. terms of bearing some very lofty... Uh, uh, themes, some of which ironically are about not being lofty. Yeah, and I think it's also it's the smallest of the Coen Brothers films in terms of setting and cast, and maybe even the theme. Uh, the theme it's a theme that's not at all universal. It's a theme that kind of applies only to artists and can only really be understood by artists. And it's kind of a hashtag artist problems. Kind of makes sense film. that it was a bomb then, really. Yeah, I think so. In in a lot of ways. It's a film that is pretty much exclusively about writer's block and about being true to your, your roots and yourself as an artist. Your artistic integrity. Yeah, it's about artistic integrity in writer's block is probably how I would frame it. Which, cl- obviously aren't universal themes whatsoever so i can't blame it i can't blame it i can't blame somebody if they find it uh unengaging like dad who is probably like one of the least artistically um ingratiated people on the face of the earth uh let me just catch up with my with my notes here it the film is kind of when you get past that, an exercise in uh, subtle surrealism with uh, peeling, slimy, sticky wallpaper and uh, and uh, barely faded colors, like what you were saying throughout the entire film. There's this kind of not not faded in like a nostalgic sense. Everything's dirty, but everything has nicotine stains yeah. on it. Not in a glamorous way. It's just all kind of it's grungy gross. and gross. Uh, dripping ceilings and shrieking bed springs. I love and... the scene when he sits or he tosses his suitcase on the bed and the whole bed just like caves buckles. in. So it's like, ee, ee. yeah, and kind of does that bouncy. Yeah, uh, the 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 film is populated by characters who you could be forgiven for calling cartoonish, and there may be a point in them being cartoonish. There may not be a point in them being called cartoonish. But compared to the characters that populate Coen Brothers' other films like Miller's Crossing... Raising Arizona. Or Fargo, Raising Arizona is more cartoonish, for sure, when you compare it to Miller's Crossing or Fargo, which are purposefully grounded in a lot of... In most, you know, ways. And the characters are much more subtle in those films, and they don't wear, you know, their hearts on their sleeves and... They aren't kind of walking uh, summaries of themselves. 
And that could be a knock against the film. It might not be a knock against the film. It might be the point of the film. I don't really know. It might be that the people, that Barton Fink views all the people around him as kind of cartoons uh, because of his high-minded estimation of himself. And that process might in turn turn him into a cartoon. Mm -hmm. You could view it as that. You could view it as bad writing. (laughs) Which is where the criticism of this film gets kind of slippery. You don't know really what's intentional in this film and what's not. And you could attribute... You know, some of the subjectivity of it to artistic genius or to laziness. It's like one of both of our favorite video games of all time. Dark Souls has this excellent sub-narrative and uh, interesting... I hesitate to use the word metaverse because it's so overdone. It has a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, but at the same time, there are also elements of bad design that some people are very quick to call, like, you know... Yep. He meant to do this, like, eh, I don't think so. The film is not very flashy, I don't think, in terms no. of its presentation. The writing can be a little um, in-your-face quirky in that Coen Brothers kind of way, but I al- I've always found it funny. I've always, always, always... And Dad found it funny, laughed, too. ...laughed at the weird, slightly surreal, offbeat presentation of their uh, characters, their little B-list character, or not B-list... Um, cartoonish no not not cartoonish either the just the side characters the oh peripheral yeah, characters okay. in the film uh i would say the scene you referred to and we're gonna get a little specific now so this might lose you just for a split second but hang in there it'll get better i think that the scene at the army and navy just to respond to what you were saying might uh mark his re-entrance into the world of the common man mm-hmm. which in the and this isn't a spoiler. It's in the opening scenes. Literally, he is the champion of the common man, and I think that his the army and navy scene shows that he has fallen out of his connection with the common man. Uh, I could be completely wrong on that, but that's how I would take it. So I don't think that that's a completely um, useless scene. I do agree with you. I think that it's overly long. I think that they probably could have chopped out a half hour, just in yeah. various taking out. You know little bits of pause and dialogue and whatnot there are certainly laugh out loud moments oh so many um it it would pass mark kermode's six laugh test yeah for me for sure and uh <laughs> i just laughed so hard at the gratuitous throwing up scenes mm-hmm. there are two of them mm-hmm. yep it's just it's the, funny <laughs> the film is very funny it, it, like especially if you have a weird sense of humor or a dark sense of humor it's extremely funny and if you are a writer or somebody who is in any way engaged in creating art of some kind, I think that you'll find a connection to this film that goes a bit deeper than the surface. It's a connection that you can't really criticize. Right. And it's that bond between me and this film. That's either there or it's not. That, yeah, and it means that I can't put it down that much. Do I think it's the Coen Brothers' best work objectively? No, I really don't think so. Um I think for me, Miller's Crossing is probably their most solidly constructed film. Uh, I would say Inside Lewin Davis. Inside Lewin Davis is actually also up there, probably. And I should have mentioned that for subtle characters. <sighs> Holy Moses, but, what a, um, we got to talk about that movie. But yeah, I, I, and I think I do think that this film is definitely worth a view if anything that we've said has piqued your interest whatsoever. If you like that kind of offbeat, uh, surreal 
comedic kind of kind of uh, uh, vibe. It's got this film bears a very subjective and surreal climax, which I'd say it's probably known for. Yeah, amongst those who have seen it, the debate surrounding it doesn't really matter, or rather, the the debate matters, but the outcome of the debate doesn't. Yeah, and that's all I'll say on it. Uh, it's a thumbs up from me. It will probably always be a thumbs up from me. The Coen Brothers just have really unique premises. And unique ways of displaying their premises. And for that reason alone, I think that their films are usually worth watching. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That's it. Thank you for joining us on another uh, Journey of the Good Ship Brothership. Uh, What are we talking about next week? There is that one film that we mentioned. We were going to watch Uh, A Ghost Story. That's what we were going to watch. A Ghost Story. And we're so... In some ways, I don't really care if we're just doing music and movies, I guess. Let's say TBD for music, because I want to do research on if anything cool has come out this year. Yeah, so we'll... we'll a ghost story, and you'll find out the other and, thing whenever. Aim, and an album, probably. 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 We'll see. We could do a double film. Or yeah. we could each review a book, but I don't think you'll have one ready. I will not be finished Infinite Jest. I've been... I've been just. You're gonna have to put that away. down for the for the like. Boat it's like a tug. It's like a tugboat through mashed potatoes. Yeah. My process. My process through infinite jest. It's so, it's so dense, and I'm moving so slowly, and I just my concentration is not what it used to be when I was 15 years old and just munching didn't have through. A phone. Mun, didn't have a phone. Munched through 500 page novels like saltine crackers, and here I am trying to conquer a thousand page novel full of you know medical terminology and i'm just staggering along under the weight of it but it is it is really uh yeah. compelling and so once we, again a ghost story yeah uh thank you so much if you've listened all the way through this we love you so much and also your feedback is welcome that's what i was gonna say uh, yep. if you want to come on the show let us know we seriously have, as you can tell from listening to us we have a pretty low bar for talent yep um if you have any suggestions for topics but you don't want to come on for some reason that's cool too if you want to uh, criticize us nicely, I would love to hear that. Really, like, um, legitimately. Yeah. Any feedback whatsoever. Even if you just reach out via the Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thegoodshipbrothership, I think. Sure is. Uh, even if you just reach out and go, hey, I listened to your new episode, you know, cool. Yeah, <laughs> we'd be happy. What I would really like to get doing is have a couple even really short reviews um, each episode of the things that we reviewed on the previous episode. So if one of you, or two of you, or three of you, after hearing this, go listen to Electric oh. Mud, even if you just listen through to it once, even if you listen to half of it, I don't care. Let us know what you think. Seriously, let idea. us know what you think of the stuff we've talked about, because that's what this podcast is kind of supposed to be about, is opening that uh, conversation with each other and just kind of uh, making each other hip to cool stuff. That's a very good point. Watch yeah. Barton Fink, listen to Electric Mud, let us know what you think. You could get on and win a half-used tube of chapstick. I, I would say, if you, if, if for the first person who sends in <laughs> a review of something we've talked about, I will mail you a tube of chapstick. <laughs> <laughs> will you actually? I will absolutely okay. do that. <laughs> They'll make history, and in return, I'll moisten their lips. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you so much. Goodbye. (laughs) I will do it. I'm dead serious.